how do you bring MedTech to market? My name is Karen Brown and I'm your host. On MedTechRx, you'll hear from the experts, people who have worked for us, people we've worked with, and the people we see advancing MedTech innovation. I don't have to tell you this is a complex industry. I know because I've lived it. After receiving my PharmD and working on clinical trials in academia, pharma, and a global med device CRO, I'm building my own firm. Tune in and enjoy. Today we're speaking with Liz Marquis, Head of Community Engagement for Two Bear Capital, a venture capital firm based in Whitefish, Montana, focused on solutions to challenges in health and wellness. Liz is a pioneer in building access to equity capital and high-value startups in non-traditional locations. Liz came to Montana in 2000 and joined the Montana West Economic Development and the Flathead County Port Authority, where she served as president and CEO for seven years. She started Frontier Angels, Montana's first angel investment fund, seeding more than $20 million in very early stage capital. Thanks so much for joining me, Liz. We are excited to have you here on MedTech RX, where we talk to innovators and founders of MedTech and life sciences companies and learn more about the successes that they've had. But also, we like to dig into the failures and talk about how you really became the person that you are today. And so, we are so excited to have you here. We just want to hear more about your career path and your journey and get some advice from you for medtech innovators, myself included, but largely our biomedical firms and biotech, med device, all the people who are looking to fundraise. So let's dive in a little bit. You were raised in Auburn, Alabama. I was. I was a faculty child. My dad did research. Almost everybody in my neighborhood had a PhD which is really a wonderful place to grow up because education is so deeply valued. But it really had the effect of, on me of wanting to be in a more real world because really education was the sole employer of our community by and large. But of course, things began to change in the 60s and 70s with the space program and research. And Auburn had a ton of research around fisheries, around poultry, and a vet school. So lots of research in vets. I had neighbors who did very well in the world inventing vaccines for animals. But I went to a lab kindergarten and we visited lots of labs and research facilities. And I just could never see myself in a lab all those hours. I'm way too social. (laughs) The first thing I want to say to you and every other person that perseveres through a graduate and doctorate degree in the sciences, kudos to you. You are my heroes. Thank you for not giving up because it takes a really deep commitment to learn the language and the tools of science. One of my hopes is that over the next five to 10 years, it might be a little bit easier and more compelling. We might have different tools and different ways of learning, and the scientific method might be tweaked quite a bit as we're able to uncover different methods to learn. I mean, with computational biology, that's an area that our firm is very interested in is what can compute do for us that faster, better, cheaper than humans can do. So hats off to you. I was very mathematical, loved math, 
but never was compelled about the way science was taught. But one of the really interesting things I see now in our companies is that it's not just biology or chemistry or tech or code, it's all of the above. So good for you. And and one of the things that I also have observed about this whole life science world, I had a lot of trepidation about wading into this because 20 years ago, I had been very early on involved in the Montana Bioscience Alliance. I used to go every to Denver to the conference and I was just overwhelmed by my lack of domain expertise. And as an angel investor, that's I never invested in anything I couldn't remotely understand, have some concept of. And the other piece that I really learned, and I'm really grateful to you for doing this show and getting this community together, is we aren't going to have a robust life science community in Montana until we have a bigger ecosystem. I mean, even Denver, it is considered not Boston, not San Diego, and New York is coming on strong. Denver has a lot of expertise in diagnostics and its design, its materials, its marketing, its packaging, Mm -hmm. its approval processes, its trials. And again, kudos to you for having I guess, are you our only contract research organization in Montana? We are, yes. Yeah, we're very proud of that. And we're very proud to be scaling this company in Montana as well. I think it it brings challenges to be growing a company like this in often under-resourced area. But we also, because we're overcoming those challenges, get to have a lot more insight into what companies similar to us that are trying to grow or trying to raise money in these under-resourced areas, what they're seeing and what barriers they're facing. So I think that in a lot of ways, it has really benefited us. And I would say the same thing about having been an early mover in angel investing in a non-traditional market. When you really build from nothing, you learn so much. You don't make assumptions. You have a lot of failures, but also you don't have to fit in a slot because you don't know what the slot is yet. (laughs) And I do think it makes you quite a bit more creative and imaginative. And you have to be, you have to try more, but it also gives you a chance to change the industry. And it's one of the, even though Two Bear Capital has offices in San Diego, New York, Boston and Palo Alto, we're in Montana and we're here because it gives us a little bit of insulation from entrenched systems, ideas. It's still a very siloed world. And one of our greatest values is to do whatever we can to get brilliant problem solvers to collaborate together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're so fantastic at that. You're when I think about innovation and entrepreneurship and industry in Montana, I think of you. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you to say, (laughs) but it was always for me, I'm one of those late bloomers. And I also am one of those people that I had a ton of interest and curiosity about a lot of things, not just one thing. And over time, that's actually served me very well, even though I I didn't realize that I'm a little bit of an outlier in that area. But in the world we live in today, it's the interdisciplinary areas 
where so much innovation happens. And and literally, if it's why I love venture capital so much and working for a top tier venture capitalist at the <laughs> globally in a 360 degree way of, you know, edit and problems at customers, at trends, at and there's so many things that impact all of us every day. And science is no different. I look today at the fires in Lahaina. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And we have got to build a culture where we realize that we all are connected and we're all deeply dependent on each other, both from an ecological standpoint and a biological standpoint. And we all have a role to play in that. We all aren't going to be the true scientists that you are, but (laughs) science is foundational for well-being of not only our planet, but our bodies. So I look at it more as it, it took me a while to find my space there, but I think I have. And I, as an aging human, I'm deeply interested, obviously, in my lifespan, not so much how long you live, but it, it's really how productive and valuable that I can be outside of experience is amazing. But if you don't have your health, you don't have wealth, you know, and we're living so much longer and we don't have plans for how that's going to look for us. And I do think a lot about that. Yeah, definitely more quality of life. How do we build this? It's interesting to me. I want to dive into tuber capital a little bit, but we'll go back a little bit to you and your upbringing and I remember you mentioning to me something, you said something along the lines of the second they brought that frog out for dissection in biology class, you're like, I don't want anything to do with it. And on MedTechRx last week, I, I talked about my science origin story, which I think I've shared with you, where basically my mentor came out. I was working on a 9,000 acre wheat farm and he came out and shook this little plastic rinky dink water bottle at me with about a couple milliliters of bright blue fluid in it. And he said that a drop of this could kill a 200 pound man digging through. I've been asked so many times, how did you get into this? How did you start to get interested in science? And digging through my memories, that's the point that I can go back to where I was like, I really need to understand how that works. But it sounds like it was really different for you as a young adult growing up. And where do you think your interest in life sciences even came from? I think a lot of it was obviously a different time. And I was always a very good student. I was very, I mean, A in biology, I don't mind blood and guts or any of that stuff. It just, the mechanism of action wasn't interesting to me. And it was just like coding. I luckily was hooked into the university mainframe. I was, I coded, I wrote C plus when I was in 1969. It was a long time ago, but there was no connection to a problem you could solve or a thing you could create. It was so much more the path for a scientist was nurse, doctor, researcher. I just didn't see that bigger opportunity in life science. And we've come a long way. We have an enormously long way to go as a culture in understanding we have a healthcare system that has not incented self-care and well-care. We have a system that incents 
for, doesn't incent, but it pays for sick care. And, mm-hmm. and therefore, we've built a system that knows a lot more about being sick than about staying well and healthy. And also, we all sat in the same desk in rows. <laughs> there was no encouragement for different thinking. And, and in science, there just seemed to be so much memory. I was like, remember this part? Remember that part? Okay, okay, I've got all that. Next, I just <laughs> never quite got to that next part. But I love your example. And I love, I love plants. And I just, it was just not something that I was always so much more interested in people's behavior, I guess is more than anything. But that is an area that if I ever do another startup, It'll absolutely be around longevity and well-being and productivity because I am I'm not as quick. I don't multitask as well, but I am way smarter than I ever was in my 40s and 50s. Now, could I do five PowerPoints and read 17 papers? Yes. Can I do that now? No, because I like to sleep now. But I know... I'm much more patient, considered, I have a lot more life experience, and that's worth a lot over time. So that will be, we have a culture that literally spends about $2 billion in marketing every year to people over 55 to tell them what all they need because they're older and graying. And I can tell you physically, I'm probably in the best shape of my life because I know I have made a very active choice about that I probably wouldn't have made in my 30s because you don't have to. (laughs) Yes, I can see how passionate you are about that longevity and that wellness piece. I know Two Bear Capital, as you've mentioned, likes to work at that intersection of electrical engineering and biology. Have you had an opportunity with a potential investment or areas of of expertise that you've brought in where you can marry those worlds between electrical engineering and biology that Mike's so passionate about and your wellness and Absolutely. longevity. Yeah. Yes. Almost anything in genetics yes. involves coding. And actually our other general partner, Seth Stratton, who was at Stanford running the ENCODE project, which was coding the other 98.5% of the human body, we came to know Seth through one of our startups that is a bioinformatics company. And he was using their tool to do his research programming. So definitely everything in genetics involves codes. And then as we look at literally new kinds of platforms for drug discovery that can involve algorithms and formulas to compute all of the possible combinations for you, your body. It's one of the things that I'm so passionate about Erica's work at the university is that we are actually all very different and we, we need to move toward precision treatments of not only for pharma, but also for understanding that a tumor in you is not the same as it is in someone else, even though it's classified as the same abnormality. And then the other part about compute that's so fascinating, and Mike can talk for hours about this technically, is it's not that you go to medical school and you become a heart specialist or psychologist or a neurologist. Actually, 
your heart, your brain, certainly infinitely impacted by your immune system, infinitely impacted by your DNA. So how does compute, and we think it does, gives us the opportunity to simulate what is going on in your body and find more effective, more productive, and more enduring cures or, or corrections. I, I literally think at some point we're going to be calling it a correction <laughs> because we will go in and say, oh, you have protein or this gene expression is not right here. And I, one of the things I had never paid any attention to was rare disease. And sadly, we grow up thinking, oh, that poor person with the rare disease, right? Well, actually, rare disease is how we learn so much, but so many people are affected by rare disease. We are, it's really shocking to me, given the big spectrum and how different populations are, but at at the base core, we're all human. And so starting from there, I love the ability to quantum, to compute how different I am than somebody in a Southeast Asian country or whatever. And I just think we're at the dawn of that. And it's pretty exciting, but it's going to take scientists. It's going to take mathematicians. It's going to take environmental people, nutrition. I mean, so much to, do you want to live to be a hundred now? Lots of people are, but not a lot of them are living well past 85. That's kind of. Right. Definitely. Yeah, and I know you're a huge fan, as am I, of Lee Hood, and he's really considered the father of systems biology, which is a lot about what you know what what you were just talking about. How do you predict that life sciences and where we put our dollars in terms of moving more towards a holistic approach and wellness? How do you see that transforming in the next twenty years? It'll be a a sea change. And first of all, let's be sure your audience knows that Lee Hood is a Montanan. Yes, absolutely. Very proud to to claim him. And he, among a number of others, our state has produced some of the greatest scientists and change agents in their field in the world with Herb Weissman and stem cells and with Maurice Hilleman and vaccines. It's pretty remarkable. It's an amazing legacy. And I know you're, uh, you've probably already finished Lee Hood's book. I'm a little slower than you. <laughs> I have to look I'm up. I'm still some. in the, the weeds a little bit. Two, two young kids. The work. <laughs> systems biology is, and, and what's so fascinating to me is that I believe Mr. Hood is, Dr. Hood is 80 years old. I know Erebus in his 80s, and both of them are doubling down on the future of where we are in biology, largely in part with the new tools that we have to accelerate discovery. And that comes from compute. I mean, it it does. So what I see changing, so first of all, there are some dream things that could happen, but One of the things I would really hope to see happen in my lifetime is that every baby born in the U.S. gets a whole genome sequence because from that information, so much can be gleaned in terms of, if you will, a a lifestyle and or diet and exercise, or you're likely to have kidney disease. And it's just the whole part of predictive health 
that to me is the foundational piece of it. And we have a system now where you get sick, you try to figure out why, oh, you should go get a sequence, which test should you get? And it's just, I've seen, oh, I've had nieces and nephews deeply impacted by rare genetic disorders and it's years and we should that should be an instant thing that should be oh this is going to happen what can we do to prevent this as opposed to try to be reactive to it i think that's going to be very realistic one of the other really interesting things that's going to happen is I think 20 years, we're going to look at hospitals as hotels for sick people. I think hospitals are going to become, hopefully, hotbeds of clinical information and data sources. I'm very excited about what artificial intelligence is going to bring us. And and there's so much buzz and hype around it. But really, all it is, deep training sets of big sets of data, right? And if you have 10 million kidney disease people... (laughs) You can do a lot of data training about who gets kidney disease, why they get kidney disease, what does their profile look like? I think all of those things will happen. And I know recently Mayo Clinic has started an accelerator. I didn't know if you were aware of that. It's called Platform. And they are particularly looking for AI applications in big data because Mayo Clinic actually owns or has access to probably the largest body of data in the world around healthcare and science. And they want to make sure that is available, secure. And that's one of our very unique specialties at Two Bear Capital is a number of the platforms that enable ethical and secure data sharing about you, (laughs) about your health, about your DNA. And that's that those things can't happen unless we can absolutely guarantee that. And there are going to be political hurdles to do that because sadly, we learned during COVID that we live in a society that is very ignorant of science. And to have science politicized for me was really heartbreaking because I remember polio and what a big deal it was for my family when I started first grade to go on a Sunday and get our polio vaccine. We had an iron lung in our hall at school because South polio, I had two or three students in my grade that had been very affected by polio. Mostly people were a little bit older than me, but it's one of the reasons my parents joined a a pool because people got polio from swimming in lakes. And that was the transmitter in hot weather in the South. And I just remember how life-changing that was and what a strange backlash and experience COVID was for me after having gone through that, which it was such a, Jonas Salk was a hero and he worked years on that vaccine. And just, I don't know, It's we've got a lot of work to do. And that's another area personally that I'm very interested in is standing up for science. Yeah, it's definitely having that whole scientific process play out in a way that can be understood by the masses at a very high level in, in real time was quite the experience. I think it's mm-hmm. interesting to think about now today where we are and how everything has evolved and what's going to stay and what's going to be forgotten. 
in the last few years, how this might transform society, how we have an opportunity to really advocate for science and even turn inside ourselves and, and look at at how we're educating, how we're disseminating information, the verbiage that we use. I think running a consulting firm even and doubling that with the science piece of it. You use so much jargon that we all really need to to be able to transform the way that we're able to share information. But that's interesting to hear about your experiences as a young child and how that really informed the process that you had during COVID and your outlook on it. Going back to that, at what point did you come to Montana? It was a really serendipitous, random life experience. (laughs) I was working in public policy at the Winston-Salem Chamber of Commerce, and I got a phone call from a headhunter that said, Liz, don't you vacation out west? And I said, yeah, because my family, luckily we had been, I actually was born in Albuquerque when my dad was in the Air Force and he really had wanted to stay in the West. And my mom just couldn't imagine us not being closer back to our family in Alabama. So they went back to Auburn in 1955, but we did lots of trips out West. And when my, I'm from a large family, I have three sisters, we have 16 children several summers we would go to Moosehead Ranch, which we loved. And then summers we didn't go there. It was in Wyoming. We would rent a house and come because it's pretty miserable in Alabama in August. But this headhunter said, would you just do me a big favor? There's this little startup economic development group in somewhere, I think it's Cowsville. And they have a couple of Southern people on their board. They've had three failed searches would you go out there and interview for this job for us? And I went, what? And I had three little kids and I'm sort of like, yeah, I could do that. I did that. And it was a very interesting experience. They had very little money in the bank, but they had a a really solid idea that one of the desperate things that Montana needed was more private sector engagement in the economy. Because frankly, at the time, Montana was the 49th in wages. We, frankly, our state budget was way over 50% federal money. We were really not self-determining very well, but mainly there just wasn't a lot of opportunity here. The extraction industry paid well, but there weren't that many jobs. And they could see that our best and brightest were going to hang around to work in extraction industries. They were just bleeding talent. So Anyway, long story short, it was a weird interview. They brought in three people at the same time. They did a community interview, and then they offered me the job, and I had to negotiate for health care and moving expenses. And anyway, I arrived in September of 2000 with a plan, and the plan was three things. I was going to focus on the marketing of Montana as a fabulous place to live and The internet gave us opportunities we've never had before. The second one was entrepreneurship and building new businesses rather than going down the street and fighting Red Ocean for another auto body shop. And then third was to do some capital formation in private capital because you can't have entrepreneurs don't have cash flow and collateral, and that's what banks lend on. So there was just zero private equity. And that, and ultimately, after seven years and doing Frontier Angel Fund 1 and 2, I left that organization and just became an entrepreneur in, in my consulting business and running the angel funds. That's fantastic. You started your fund 
out of your barn loft, right? (laughs) Yes, I did. I actually started in my organization. And while they were very supportive, they knew that it was where my heart was. It really was because one of the things in a state of a million people is that you're a mile wide and an inch deep. And I really wanted to dig down and get really good at this because it wasn't just a Montana issue. It was a national issue. There are, and just right thing, right time. In fact, in 2004, the Kauffman Foundation, which is the largest foundation in the world that exists to support entrepreneurship, sent somebody to Whitefish, Montana, unannounced, to a training that I was doing for potential angel investors at Grouse Mountain Lodge. And they said, wow, there are 80 people in Whitefish, Montana, trying to learn how to be angel investors. We think this is a thing. And lucky for me, tremendous mentors came out of that whole experience. And our fund was able to be a founding member of the Angel Capital Association, which was so amazing because we had hundreds of hours of phone calls about how can we do this better? What's missing? How can we make it better? How can we collaborate? How can we put a dictionary together? One of the hardest things about fundraising is the language of ratchets and clawbacks and term sheets and equity and pool, option pools. And those are just, it's just the language of the business, right? But it, we didn't have that business. So we standardized term sheets. And, and we still are very latent here in terms of good transactional attorneys. It's a small pool. And the way, again, particularly this is one of the issues we're going to have to face in the biotech world. Intellectual property is everything in biotech and life sciences. And it takes generally the attorneys we use are both PhDs or MDs and and MBAs, and they're just not walking around everywhere. (laughs) And they tend to migrate to large firms where there's tons of work. But the watching the angel community evolve has been a fantastic experience for me. I've learned so much, so many failures. And I never, there's so many more VCs now than there were when we started Frontier Fund. At the time, we started in 2005, about $2 billion was going into angel deals every year, but it was 20,000 deals. About $2 billion was going into VC deals. It was 200 deals. So you can see that impact. Now, that's those numbers are totally irrelevant today. Venture, the number of venture dollars has just skyrocketed over the last 15 years, 10 or 15 years, the number of new VCs has skyrocketed because we found a lot of first-time founders think that, geez, I'll just be a VC since I'm a one-hit wonder. That's one of the things I love about my boss is he is not that person and has been at the table for a lot of deals for a long time with a lot of success. And he is very deeply connected to technical founders. And Mike, he, he took a couple of years and when he left Sequoia and literally just doubled down on CRISPR, learning a lot more about this whole computational biology field. And I'm very excited that we haven't publicly announced it, but we do have a new associate joining us in early September, who is one of the top computational biologists in the country. 
Wow. He will be staffing our New York office. I know it is very exciting. There's so much to learn, but it's so much more interesting now. And one of the things that I do think COVID taught us, and I'm seeing this in some of the institutes and research organizations, that they realize that they have a bigger obligation to engage the public in scientific understanding and knowledge. Because a lot of the very tip of the spear scientists have been a little bit cloistered. It's a pretty heady crowd. As everybody says, there's no dumb bunnies in those groups. And the opportunity to make money, but also to impact lives is pretty huge. We remember the great scientists, right? And there's a lot of, it's not necessarily, it's collaborative, but uh, it's, I think it could be, I think the culture could be different. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Agreed. Oh, well, Liz, this has been so wonderful. I want to hear more about the progress that's happening at Two Bear and the vision for it. Even let's use that same benchmark. What's the vision for Two Bear Capital 20 years from today? One of the first things is my boss is a 50-year thinker. Okay. And that's kind of awesome because we need to think beyond our time. And if we did that, it's a long game. And it's really why I've become less involved in public policy and much more involved in the private sector is they're uniquely qualified to They're in a unique position to think long-term. Sadly, our political system has taken over in a way that we're very short-term thinkers, and we have really challenging problems to solve and address as a country. So for Mike to think 50 years, he wants to build an enduring firm that makes memorable impacts on human health and wellness and does so in a way that provides spectacular returns to our investors. That's kind of it in a nutshell, because if you provide spectacular returns, you get to keep solving really big problems. And of all the things I think I've learned from Mike Ogan, that's the most important, that it's not about extracting value, it's about adding value. And if you find a new platform that can identify cancer or any other disease, faster, easier, cheaper. If there are remedies for that, it really impacts lives hugely. And it doesn't happen overnight. And you can't ever, you have to be vigilant about it. It's, as I watch our companies grow, one of the big misconceptions in the private equity or private investing world where we are, which is very early stage. And is that it's three to five years? It's not. It's These are companies 10, 15 years in the lab before anything happens. And there are people that spend their entire lives understanding a molecule. And it's just, we want to support those people and But we also want to help them accelerate impact. One of the things that Mike does that's very hard and takes a lot of his time is he's the vice chairman of the Logan Health System, which is a $2 billion operation. But why does he do that? More importantly, because he doesn't want our science to be 
just over here. It's all about how it gets to the patient. It's all about the human being. And so if your science is spectacular, but you don't have a delivery system or a, a system that even can access that, it's wrong. And, and Mike's pretty egalitarian. He thinks that we, we're also very interested in platforms and new processes and procedures that actually are much more inclusive than we know today. If you're a billionaire, you can go to a clinical trial, a third phase three trial somewhere in a rare drug, and you can pay 30 grand a month and you can get in that trial, but you have to be educated about the system. You have to get in the door. You have to have the money to do it. And, and that's not a very attractive system. It really isn't. And I think more than anything, Mike has really doubled down on moving away from black box drug discovery to creating precision and medicine. as Because we do these things that we really don't know they work. Right. <laughs> and and the, we measure them like, oh, it works well enough. Oh, well, it didn't kill anybody, but maybe it didn't help me as much as it helped you. All of that. And there is a real focus on our firm as a whole on just personal health and wellness. Almost everybody here works out. Some people call us salad shamers because we <laughs> but all of that optimizes your performance. And I love that about my workplace culture. And I really see in 50 years, I think we will have made an incredible mark for Montana nationally. It might loves the state, but we also know that we must find new ways to work in the areas that we've chosen, but we also have the opportunity to bring those people here. We'd like to see a lot more interest in graduate science education across the state, more lab space for entrepreneurs. We really think that bio now is where tech was 20, 25 years ago. You can buy all kinds of science kit. It's just, these are I, I, the most passionate founders we have are those that have lost somebody to ALS yeah. and have been unbelievably, and in my own personal situation, my husband has frontal temporal lobe dementia. I'm a voracious reader and researcher. There was so little that I could glean that could translate into what my days were going to be like or how I could make the best decision. What is the best decision? It, it's been one of the hardest experiences of my life, but also one of the richest for that reason. And it certainly sparked my interest in a lot of areas of science that I was not particularly interested in before. Uh, the human cost of dementia in this country is a tsunami. Well, just it, caregiving, yeah, it's pretty unbelievable. No, I agree. I think that the more that we can talk about the systems biology piece, for sure, where, you know, we look at something more than just a mental health disorder. No, it's metabolic, too. And this is how we can go a little bit further upstream to be able to combat this or to be able to change course early on before this inevitable event that we're saying is just going to happen happens. And it's always after the fact. We have so few diagnostic 
tools for any sort of neurological disorder. I found that just completely astounding. And once a person has dementia of any sort, how do you do a trial with them? They can't tell you what they feel. They can't. They lose that ability. And it is so interesting to me. And it is, we do know that it is the whole system for sure. We're definitely passionate about that at the the work that I do at the university, the work here at Cleo about making clinical trials, especially more accessible to people at large, whether it be really taking a critical look at that inclusion, exclusion Mm -hmm. criteria that many pieces of which might not be necessary, being able to bring in patients and support their travel expenses and and allow them to be able to participate in a clinical trial, even if they're in a geographically remote area, and really taking that piece where we look at it from more of a workflow in, in the clinic and the patient journey standpoint. So I love how you mentioned that Mike is working at Logan Health as the vice chairman on their board and and able to see that piece of it too. Oh, and it's so hard. And there is important data in the hospital. There's a ton to learn, but driving health. Now, yes, people get sick. They're always going to get sick, I think. But one of the other things that I see happening is our ability to model biological systems so that we're not working in mice or working in humans. At some point, I think there's I know just enough about biology to be dangerous and that it is always hard and always changing and it's always complicated, but I think we can get a lot further down the road through computational and mathematical modeling than we've been able to do in the past. I'm one of the other areas that we're we're not invested in, but we are paying attention to is is quantum computing and and what it's going to bring to the ability to model complex systems. And the body's just as is the most complex thing there is, and the brain in particular. We finally got the, a new set of tools to address age-old problems of mankind. So, you've mentioned computing and coding so much in this podcast. I know that this is a, a huge passion for you. You probably have too many boards and too many committees to even <laughs> share about. But do you want to talk a little bit about the Montana? Code Girls School? Oh, I would love to do that. And a lot of the things that we do, if you're purpose-driven, is to try to create opportunities for others. And we know that in fifth grade, when young women become get their menstrual period, their interests change radically. And other 50-year frontier, I hope we know a lot more about hormones in 50 years than we know today because they're pretty powerful. But Code Girls really works hard to get fourth and fifth graders hooked on coding and math and proficient before this radical change happens. And it's a proven fact, but we raise little girls and boys differently. And while it's easy to say there are gender, there's a spectrum, we know that, but Gender does not determine either our interest or our ability or capacity. We know this. We know that it was so astounding to me. I met a woman that just retired as a veterinarian. At, she's in Big Sky, and she's become an artist. And she said, oh, yeah, I was in the first class that admitted women to vet school. Oh, wow. 
And she's like my age. And, okay, right? She started in 1976. She started vet school. So think about that. I mean, now 65, 70% of all that graduates are women. So it, this has nothing to do with either capacity or desire. It has to do with assumptions in a culture that needs every brain that it can possibly get focused on solving problems. And I just firmly believe that your life is better if you spend it doing work that has meaning for you. And not everybody, now I have children. I really wanted to be a mother. I'm a terrible cook. I cooked for 30 years. I didn't enjoy it, but I felt like I had to do it. It's part of the gig. But we need early on to introduce everybody to a spectrum of opportunity. And Code Girls is really unique in that area. And we know that the the earlier we get them involved, the more they persist in coding and science when they get into high school and college because they've already developed the confidence. Women are just biologically more a little bit more wired to nurture and we still have the hunter-gatherer thing with guys, but we need to get over that now. We, we really do. <laughs> and I've watched it over and over with my grandsons. Boys tear things up, and they try things and it's okay. Nobody, I mean, it's a gross general, generalization Let's just give everybody, male, female, lots of opportunities to try lots of different things, whether it's be a chef or a coder or an engineer or doctors. I mean, women are outpacing men in every graduate area there is in education in this country other than business school, because business school is on the decline because people figured out. As of YouTube. Yeah, let's just go do something, right? <laughs> and, and the other thing that I love is that I graduated from college when prime rate was 19.5% and the job market was horrible. Well, nobody had ever said, hey, go start your own business. Nobody ever said that to me. It was all that, oh, have you gotten a job? Have you gotten a job? Have you gotten a job? And the reality is, yes, we're always going to have some people that are going to need employees. But if you're working 50 years like I have been, you're not going to be a job for 50 years. What you're going to do is take a set of skills and interest and capacities to different settings. Mm -hmm. I'm bored out of my mind doing the same thing every day. I mean, that's the greatest joy of my life is that no two days are ever the same. And not everybody's like that. I understand that. And, and that, that's not what I'm saying. One is better than the other. We just need to open up all of those opportunities. And that's why I'm so passionate about women in STEM and women in investing and will be eternally grateful for the opportunity that Mike Ogan has given me to be a two-bear capital. That's a great place to end off. No, I love everything that you just said. I agree with it completely. I think we have to have more opportunities and we have to stop seeing things in black and white. You can be a mom, you can have your family and you can also be an entrepreneur. With that, do you have any last words of advice for maybe those girls in my area? You noted on this where you get paid for what you do, what you know, who you are, if you're Liz Marquis. How about some advice for those people going through those 
transitions in their career. You get Karen Brown to be your mentor. <laughs> you follow everything she does. <laughs> it's the greatest thing in life is to watch somebody in front of you become who you desire to be. So that's my advice. <laughs> Thank you so much, Liz, for your time. I so appreciate it. It was great to see you. I think I'm hogging up your time last week and this week, but Thank I'd you. love to stay connected. And yeah, this has been well, fantastic. I'm like a bad penny. <laughs> <I'll be laughs> Talk to you later, Karen. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>